I do want to add my welcome uh, to you today. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here with you. I would invite you to uh, look around and see those who are here, but in seeing those who are here, also uh, recognize those who are out today. We've got some who are visiting family and are out of town, and as you, uh, as you miss them, I want to encourage you, if you will, in the upcoming week to... Uh, uh, to reach out to them and uh, let them know that they're missed. Again, we've mentioned uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that we keep up with each other and care for each other is touching base and knowing what's going on in the lives of uh, of our folks. And if you're a guest of ours today and this is your first time here, uh, we want to say welcome. Uh, we bless the Lord for you being here. Uh, you've been able to follow along in our worship guide uh, and know a little bit about what we do and how we do it, and hopefully that has been helpful to you and encouragement as well. Uh, I want to invite you to go ahead and take your copies of Scripture. Um, if you want to, just go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, uh, put a marker there, and then I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 14, uh, and you can kind of find your way there and hold your place there, because we're going to be looking uh, and reading from Genesis chapter 14 in just a moment, and we'll actually read that before we read our text today. Uh, last week, our aim uh, was to uh, ask and answer this question. So if you were not here uh, last week, you will know what we did last week, but you will also be reminded if you were here, uh, if you have forgotten uh, what we were trying to uh, point to last week. But the question is, is our life shaped for one particular thing? And I hope you discovered the answer and its reality. Uh, we concluded in this way. Knowing and experiencing God and His glory are what we are created for. Our lives are precisely shaped for that. And in thinking about it even last week, I was reminded just as precisely as we have been given a fingerprint, that precisely, that's what our lives are shaped for. Everything about you and me is shaped for this. Every experience in our life from the time that we're conceived until we draw our last breath, it is providentially governed for that end. And apart from the gospel, we can't see the reality of that. Because we are living without consideration of God if we are apart from the gospel. And it doesn't change the reality of our purpose if we don't understand or see that any more than a person saying that the moon uh, is really a big ball of cheese changes the fact of the reality that the moon isn't made of cheese at all. Now why recall this today? Because our text today points to this reality as it is systematically unveiled here, and we'll read in just a moment in chapter 7, of Hebrews, it unveils the extent to what God has done throughout redemptive history to secure the very fulfillment of His divine purpose for which you and which I have been created for and made. So we'll hear that today. But before we read Hebrews, let's back up and read Genesis chapter 14. And here's why I want to go ahead and read this. Uh, we're going to be we're going to hear again in Hebrews about a man who we see spoken of 
and here spoken of in Genesis chapter 14. So Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17. Now the context is, is that uh, there has Abram's nephew Lot has been captured and taken away. Abraham gets word, Abram, Abraham gets word of the fact that he had been captured and taken away. He takes 300 men and he sets out to go and to bring his nephew and those who were taken with his nephew to bring them back. Now, I just want you to understand that in the course of this, this is a God thing because we have 300 men, Abraham and 300 men, 301 men going after armies of kings and cities to bring Lot back. And he does that. And he defeats those kings. And in verse 17 of chapter 14, we hear what happens. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him, meaning Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Uh, and then he leaves. Turn, if you will, now to Psalm. 110, the 110th Psalm. And in turning those few pages, recognize that you are flipping ahead about a thousand years. Okay? So you've jumped ahead a thousand years to Psalm 110, and we hear these words from the psalmist David. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so we hear about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Never heard of him before. A thousand years later, David writes and brings this man's name up again. And then turn over to Hebrews, our text, chapter 7. And before we read chapter 7, I want to remind you of something that happened three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, uh, Adam was standing here and he prefaced his teaching coming out of the last part of chapter 5 and the first few verses of chapter 6. He prefaced it by saying, and rightfully so, that the author of Hebrews is going along and he is teaching and then he, so to speak, pushes pause 
and says, but before we go any farther, we need to deal with some of these issues, these dangers of, of you falling away, of unbelief, uh, and we need to push pause and make sure that we are not stepping off into a state of apostasy. Where he pushed pause, the author of Hebrews pushed pause, was here. Go back to chapter 5 and look at verse 7. Well, back back up verse 5. So also, so we're in chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's pointing back to the 110th Psalm in verse 4. So now he begins, the author of Hebrews, and we're going to call him a preacher for right now, he begins to teach coming from the 110th Psalm in verse 4, pointing to Christ that he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on in verse 7, and in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 110th Psalm. And then the very next things we hear is this. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Pause. Now let's talk about the struggles with you being dull of hearing. Now jump to chapter 6 and verse 20. It was the last verse of our text from last week. We're hitting play again. Okay? We're hitting play again. Because we're going back to the 110th Psalm, verse 4, talking about Melchizedek. What do we hear? Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, speaking of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now your first question may be, who is Melchizedek? How many of you have ever wondered that? You read about him in Scripture and you said, who is Melchizedek? Well, as we've mentioned, you've just heard all that Scripture had to say about this man. Much has been written about a man to whom Scripture has so little to say. 
now, there would be many questions to surface if there had only been the Genesis account. So if we had ended in Genesis chapter 14, all kinds of questions would have come. Well, where did this man come from? Who were his parents? How did he become a priest? Why is he where he is at that particular time? How did Abram or Abraham, how did he know that he was the priest? All of these questions would have come about. But we hear again about him 1,000 years later when David brings him up in the 110th Psalm in a psalm that we've already mentioned recognizes and points to the Messiah. And we would have to ask even then, what is all of this about the order of Melchizedek? You are a priest forever, pointing to the Messiah after the order of Melchizedek. And as you probably can imagine, over the course of the centuries, there have been all kinds of speculations as to who this man is. Some have said he was an angel. Some have said he is a pre-incarnate Christ. But I think everyone will agree that he's interesting. Here are a few interesting things that I find about him. First, he shows up in the Abraham narrative. Now, when we're reading Genesis, we understand that there is a larger portion of Genesis that's given to this man Abram or Abraham and God's work in and through him. But when we hear about Melchizedek, it is in the middle of the Abraham narrative. And here we see the priest of a Most High God is presented in this story. And it seems that Abraham is the only one being dealt with by God. In other words, when we're tracking along, it's as if God is only dealing with Abram and he's not dealing with anyone else. Except we hear that there is already in place before Abram, this priest of the Most High God. Don't you find that interesting? That God is at work in the lives of other people, that He is even designated and called out and set aside a priest that is later recognized by Abraham as priest of the Most High God. And when we get to Hebrews, we hear that His name is translated, that He is righteous, that He is peace, that He's a king. There's something very different about Him. And then we get to the psalmist a thousand years later and we hear nothing else about Melchizedek. A thousand years later, seems like out of the blue, David, who was not alive a thousand years earlier, in a psalm, points to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the Holy Spirit brings Melchizedek, who David never knew. We're not even sure how he even knew about him because we don't hear anything else in Scripture about him. And David brings, through the Holy Spirit, come bringing to his mind, he brings Melchizedek up again. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? But I want to remind us that in our interest of Melchizedek, we need to be careful. And here's what we need to be careful of. We need to be careful with the, we don't miss what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. He is telling us some things about Melchizedek that we did not know entirely from Genesis or from Psalms. But he is not pointing us back to Melchizedek. No, the person of interest in Hebrews is not Melchizedek. The person of interest is Christ Jesus. 
The person of interest is Christ Himself. Melchizedek is only significant is that in that even in the Genesis account, his ministry is representing something that, mind you, listen, is foundational. In other words, it foundationally stands to fulfill what God is doing in this one that he had given the promise, that is Abraham. And that is the essence of what the author of Hebrews is unveiling. So let's look at it. It might help us to be reminded, before we move on, of the historical context and also the audience of this letter to the Hebrews. Well, we already mentioned they are Hebrews. They are Jewish believers who have come out of Judaism and they have trusted Christ. In other words, historically we recognize it seems as though temple worship is still in place, sacrifices are still being made in the temple, there's still a priesthood, all of this is going on. They have been saved and are now have now turned their attention to the saving work of Christ, meaning that they are no longer going to the temple, they are no longer dependent upon those sacrifices that are being made for them. But as Adam reminded us, the author of Hebrews pushes pause and says this is true, but we need to be careful that we don't fall away. We need to be careful that we don't fall into disbelief and unbelief, as Booney reminded us a moment ago. And we need to be careful that we don't become a, 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 a apostates that we don't turn our back on what God has done. And the reason this morning that we looked at Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment, which we'll be getting to in the weeks ahead, is that even in the course of this, we find that if we reject Christ, if they rejected Christ, they are putting to shame, if you will, in their own minds and lives of the sacrifice that Christ has made for them. And the author of Hebrews is bringing all of this forward and saying that you need to make sure that you don't turn away from Christ and here is why. And then he goes on to lay out the very security that is given to them that can only be found in Christ. So these are Hebrews who have an understanding that there was a time in the past that they trusted in what was going on in the temple. They were trusting in the intercession of the priest. They were trusting in those sacrifices as their salvation, as a demonstration of their faith to God. We look there in chapter 7 as the means by which they would draw near to God. Look, if you will, there in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. In verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And then if you will, look in verse 25. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. In other words, the whole point in the priesthood was in somehow helping them draw near to God. And in the past, they had sought to draw near to God through temple worship. They had sought to draw near to God through the intercession of the priest who stood in their place to make intercession for them. But now in Christ, they have looked to Him who is the one who makes intercession for them. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't turn away from that and go back to Judaism. 
And it's not just a matter of, hey, we want you over here, don't go back over there. The point is, is that you cannot and will not draw near to God through what is taking place in the temple. That that priest that is still interceding, so to speak, and representing intercession is no longer the ones who are interceding, but Christ alone is the one who is interceding. He is the one who is making intercession. There is a perfection that has come in Him. I believe those things are important. I was reminded uh, this week as I was working through this text of two things. And I'm going to put them in the way of a question. The first thing is what do we do with sin? What do we do with sin? Every person undeniably struggles with sin. That's the reason that every week that we gather we talk about confessing our sin. It's a very real thing. And it may not be identified as sin. It may be referenced as some kind of a problem or some kind of failure or some kind of dysfunction. But the Bible defines it as sin. Just a few weeks ago in our catechism, the question was, what is sin? I hope you caught that. I wonder how many of us could answer what is sin. We would have different definitions, and there are more than just one way to define it. But the way we defined it and had it defined for us in our catechism was this, is that sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created, rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him, not being or doing what He requires in His law, resulting in our death and disintegration of all creation. And you may ask, and would be a question to ask, can every wrong or hardship really be so simply and immediately defined as sin or related to sin? You know, that's the question that those who reject God so often offer as a challenge to the whole notion of sin and the need for a Savior. Is can everything really just simply be stated, well, this is sin and this is sin? And the answer is, yes, it can. Because that is exactly how what Scripture says about it. And it's this reason that we constantly struggle with sin because it stands against everything that is good, everything that is about God, because everything that God has done, everything that He has given, every law, every direction, every order, everything that He has placed for us to live by is good. And we know this because even in this cursed world, when things are done God's way, it immediately brightens that area of darkness. So the question is, is what do we do with sin? And then the second question that kept coming to my mind as I worked through this text it's what do we do with our weaknesses and inward corruption? How do we fix it? Well, therapy doesn't work. We already know therapy doesn't work. Drugs will not work. How do we know this? Well, we give medications to those who struggle with addictions in the efforts to get them out of their addiction. And then what happens? Well, they become addicted to that, but so oftentimes they go back to their addictions. So a drug's not going to work. We give drugs to pedophiles in an effort to help them manage their desires. 
but nothing's been done about their weaknesses and inability to change their desires. Now, I know those are blatant examples, but the fact is we can do nothing about the condition of our heart, which is the reason that the author of Hebrews gives us what he gives us and is instructing and encouraging the church then to pay attention to Christ and not turn back to Judaism. Why? Because nothing that had been given prior to Christ could do anything about the heart of man. Nothing. It could do nothing about sin. The author is arguing that Christ alone is an answer to these two things. How can sin be dealt with and bring us near to God? And what can be done about the condition of our heart? So let's look at it. Now I want you to know we're going to be brought in some ways in looking at chapter 7 because we're going to continue to point back to chapter 7 with other things that are coming up in Hebrews. But I want us to point out three things. First is that in answer to the problem of our sin and how to deal with our heart, we recognize that our sin is dealt with because Christ accomplished things for us by virtue of the fact that he is a perfect high priest. Now, we are assuming that in light of the fact that when God established his law, he gave in the law the order of the priesthood coming from the tribe of Levi, specifically given to Aaron's family. Remember, Aaron is Moses' brother, so we have the Aaronic priesthood. So all the priests would flow from Aaron. God has given this priesthood in connection with the law for a purpose to stand in the picture or in the way of interceding on behalf of man. So when God establishes the tabernacle, and with the tabernacle came the Holy of Holies, that center place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And that Holy of Holies was the place where God resided, was given for the people to look to, was the place where God resided. And no man came into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And God had established that. And that high priest would bring in the blood of the sacrifice and place it on the altar and would go there to be the go-between humanity, Israel, and God. In an effort to show them that to get near to God, to come to God, that sacrifices had to be brought and had to be, there had to be an intercession made between man and God. And we recognize this. And here is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. He's pointing to the reality of that need, that continued need for a priesthood, for someone to intercede. And here's what he says about Melchizedek. And here's where Melchizedek becomes important. Look in verses 1 through 3. We're going to hear about the characteristics of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, Okay, so we hear that he is a priest and a king. 
when we look at the law that was given by God who established a priesthood, let's go ahead and make note of that never was the king the priest or the priest the king. In fact, we had folks like Saul who got into big trouble for trying to play the role of priest because God intended for them necessarily to be separate. So never was a king a priest or a priest a king, but here with Melchizedek, we have something that is different than God had given in the law. And notice that Melchizedek precedes the law because he is living, he is a contemporary of Abraham. And remember, Abraham preceded the law. The law came with Moses, and Moses came after Abraham. So he was a priest and a king, Melchizedek was. Notice what else. It says that uh, he was, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So he represents righteousness and peace. He represents righteousness and peace. Notice something else about him that he was a priest by, not by virtue of his descendants, but by virtue of having been established so by God. Notice what it says there in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, we have to look at the context here and understand what is being said. There's no indication in the rest of Scripture that Melchizedek is anything other than a man. Now, people would argue that, but there's no indication in Scripture that he is anything other than man, which means that if he is man, he has a mother and a father. It seems to be that the point here is, is that he didn't have a father that was a priest and it was handed down to him to be a priest, or he didn't have a grandfather. He didn't come from a lineage of priests and became priest by virtue of a particular genealogy, but we see him in Genesis as being priest of the Most High God. So he did not come to his priesthood by virtue of his descendants, and notice what else it says, which again is a little bit hard, but we have to look at the context. It says, doesn't have beginning of days or end of life, meaning his priesthood was not established in the course necessarily of his birth and ended it as his death. When we see Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, he seems to be an adult. He's serving his priest of the Most High God by virtue of God, not by virtue of genealogy. And then we don't hear anything about his death. It doesn't mean that he didn't die. It just means that in accordance with his priesthood, his priesthood did not necessarily end at his death. That all that we know about Melchizedek is that he was alive and he served as a priest. Now let's look at verses 4-10. through 10. Because here is where it begins to point to the perfection or point to the fact that he is in a superior position over Abraham which is critical to the argument that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. Notice that it says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So, in the law, it has been established that the rest of the brothers, if you will, the rest of the tribes, take care of financially the priest who came from the tribe of Levi. 
If we'll go back and look at how uh, the, the, the land was broken down, the tribe of Levi did not have a particular section of land. They had been given particular cities that were scattered throughout the rest of the tribes. And even those who were of the tribe of Levi were not all priests, but they all were in service to God. What we do recognize is and understand is that Aaron, coming from the tribe of Levi, was designated as the one through whom all the priests would come. So Aaron's sons were priests, their sons were priests, their sons' sons were priests, and so it goes, and that's how the priesthood was established. Not, vir- not by virtue of their righteousness, not by virtue of any other calling, but by virtue of their genealogy. And what the author of Hebrews is arguing here is that Melchizedek stood above and superior to Abraham because Abraham came to him and paid him a tenth without law prescribing the tenth being paid to him, paid him a tenth or or offered a tithe to him of all of the spoils. In fact, we see what Abraham does. Melchizedek gets a tenth, but Abraham gives everything else away, gives it all back to God, and Melchizedek receiving the tithe, and the author of Hebrews, notice what else is interesting, argues that even in Abraham having paid the tithe, Levi, who had not yet been born, okay, He had not yet been born because at this time Isaac had not been born and Isaac's son Jacob had not been born and Jacob's son Levi had not been born. None of those had been born yet, but the author of Hebrews was arguing by virtue of the fact that Abraham paid the tithe, he was in essence representing all of the rest of the tribes of Israel so that whatever God was doing through this promise, was still inferior to what he has and was doing through the establishment of Melchizedek as a priest. Now I want you to catch this, because we keep hearing, even from David, remember, we're doing an exposition ultimately of Psalm 110 and verse 4, and what do we hear? That Christ was established as priest forever according to the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. In other words, it continues to point back to Melchizedek, meaning that Melchizedek and this priesthood, him representing this priesthood, this work of intercession that God was establishing, was superior even to the promise that had been made to Abraham. Now remember what we did last week? We looked briefly at that promise. Back up in chapter 6 for just a moment. Notice what he says in verse 13 of chapter 6. Because one promise is subordinate, if you will, or is fulfilled by this ultimate promise that was coming to the Messiah that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look in chapter 6 and verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, we already pointed to the promise, when he made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by Abraham saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Well, what was the point of the promise? Well, God was promising to Abraham 
a family and a nation of people by whom ultimately would Christ would come through Judah, not Levi, and we'll look at that in just a moment, through Judah, not Levi, but God was promising the Messiah, was promising that one coming from Abraham's lineage would ultimately be the one that would serve as the blessing, and that blessing wasn't in the way of blessing with a new car or uh, uh, whatever it may be that we wanted, was talking about the blessing of eternal life would come through this one, but that this blessing ultimately is fulfilled by this one who is superior and the promise that was made to him through this priesthood. The second thing that we see is that this work that was necessary to take care of sin and to take care of the condition of heart is accomplished by Christ who provided a better hope that was couched in, I want you to catch this, was couched in a new promise and a new covenant. Look, if you will, there in verse 18 of chapter 7. Notice what it says. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because its weakness, because of its weakness and uselessness. I want you to notice that this hope was not based on the law because in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And in verse 20, and it was not without an oath. In other words, it was not without a promise, not without a covenant. This covenant was tied into this, was, was coming out of this oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. In other words, all of the priests that had come from Aaron were not priests made by a promise or an oath coming from God. They became priests because of who they were in lineage, who they were as the descendants of Levi. Melchizedek came because God and Christ came because God has made this promise, a new covenant in Christ and this oath. And we'll talk about the covenant in more detail later, but it's introduced here because it is secured in the promise that God has made. And the promise that God made in, in this oath and in this covenant comes from here. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. Psalm 110 and verse 4. You are a priest forever. In other words, the Messiah is a priest forever. And then notice in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That word guarantor, by the way, is used here, and it's not used anywhere else in Scripture. It's the only place that that word is used. And it means that He stands as surety for His own promise. Just as we looked at last week, that the promise that God had made, the oath that God had made, God made and swore to it by His own name and His own purpose, 
Jesus stands as the guarantor or as the surety of His own promise. In other words, His life stands as surety for the promise that He has made and that promise coming from God that Christ would be a priest forever. How important is this? Well, it's huge. Why? Remember, this letter was written to Hebrews. What had they trusted in for their salvation? Prior to them coming to Christ, they had trusted in the law. They had trusted in all the pieces of the law that God had put together, meaning temple worship, meaning the priesthood, meaning someone interceding for them. They had trusted in the sacrifices as being at least representative of the atonement that was necessary for them to have forgiveness of sin, for them to be able to brought near to God. And all of these things had taken place, and yet here, notice in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. What was being pointed to? Well, the whole thing was is the law did nothing to or for the condition of the person's heart. The problem with our sin and the problem with their sin was only addressed by Christ because it was only in Christ that their hearts could be changed. It was only in Christ that the condition of their heart was made better. In other words, that the law made nothing perfect, changed nothing about the person's heart. What did the law do? Well, the law was good. The law showed them their sin. Showed them what righteous living should look like. Convicted them, if you will. Showed them, as Paul said uh, in Romans, it showed him what coveting was. And in that, he began to recognize that, that, that being, being covetous was a sin. But it didn't change the fact that he coveted, nor did the law in any way change the fact that a person was involved in the sin. What it did, it exposed the sin, which was good. It showed them their sin, which was good. Showed them what righteousness should look like, and that was good. But it didn't do anything to change their condition. But now Christ, on the other hand, is a better hope. Through His priesthood comes a better hope by which they draw near to God. What does that look like? Well, look over in Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. We'll point back to John's Gospel with this. But in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Meaning, it couldn't bring life. It couldn't change anything about a person's life. It couldn't change their heart. For God has done what the law could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is, righteousness could take place in our life. And how does that take place? We'll look on in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then if you will, look on down a little bit farther in verse 9. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. How is the Spirit of God able to dwell in them? Well, in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus says that it is good that I leave, so that what? So that another like me can come and live in you. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Anyone who does not, Paul goes on in verse 9 of of chapter 8 in Romans, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, there's not a changed heart. There can't be a changed heart. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So we come back over to Hebrews and notice what? That there is a better hope. A hope that ultimately will change the condition of the heart. Not just expose our sin, but the hope of the Spirit of God living in us to bring about the sanctifying work of Christ in us. So it's accomplished by Christ who provided a better hope. How was that able? Well, we'll find out later as we continue on in Hebrews. We'll find out that that comes because Christ this high priest offers a sacrifice of himself. That atonement would be made a complete, full and complete atonement. The third thing is, is that there is a work that is accomplished by Christ who makes eternal intercession. Look at verse 25. It was part of our, um, our assurance of pardon. Consequently, He is able to save. Consequential to what? Well, consequential to the fact that He makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Consequential based upon the fact that the former priest in verse 23 were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You see what it's saying? A priest was a priest at a certain age and served and took care of his priestly duties up to a certain age. He remained in the priestly line, but his priesthood as a whole ended at his death. Why? Because he was mortal. He had died. wasn't there to serve anymore. So what had God done in the provision of the Aaronic priesthood? Well, a family member would come along and step in his place and continue to go and continue to intercede. But there's something unique about Christ. He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And here's the kent. Here's the clincher. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Why is the resurrection of Christ so important? The resurrection of Christ is important because it established Him as our living Savior. You've heard this said, but I was reminded when I read this text, all other religions of the world rest upon trying to keep a law, dependent upon someone who else has lived or died, lived and died. Those who follow Christ are the only group in all of the world that has a living Savior that continues to intercede for them. 
We began our service this morning. We're going to end it close in the same way of singing about all of our tomorrows are yours. That's not to a dead man. That's to a living God. And the reason all of our tomorrows can be Him, be to Him, and find rest in Him, and the reason that we can trust in that is because that He is alive. He is alive. He accomplishes something for us because He is an eternal high priest that makes intercession for us eternally. Now what does that mean? Well notice, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Christ is doing for those who trust Him today? He's making intercession for them. You know what He did yesterday? He made intercession for us. You know what He'll do tomorrow? He'll make intercession for us. Whether we are living or dead, if we are in Christ, He will be interceding for us. You know what He will be doing for us whenever this world ends, falls under the judgment of God, and those who are believers are resurrected and in His presence in heaven? You know what Christ will be doing every day for all of eternity? He will be making intercession for us. Why? Because apart from His making intercession for us, we would necessarily be subject to the judgment of the wrath of God because there will never be a time that we don't deserve the wrath of God because we've sinned against God. But because of the great love that God has for us and because of this great work that Christ has done and is doing as our eternal high priest by the establishment of God who said that you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, He has established for all eternity the security that we have and rest in in Christ Jesus, because God lovingly placed His Son as the eternal high priest so that there would never be a time that for those who would believe in Him, that we would not have someone interceding for us so that we would be near to God. You see how incredible that is? Yes, Jesus died for our sins. And sometimes we just say that and we move on. Understand that He intercedes for us and makes possible for us continually the promise, the hope, and the assurance of eternal life. Which is what? We looked at it last week. From his prayer in John 17. What is eternal life? To know God. And the one who he has sent. On our behalf. His son. Jesus Christ. If you're here and a believer. I hope you grasp the gravity and the wonder of Christ's interceding work. And if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, know that if you trust Him, 
there will never be a moment of time that you have to wonder whether you are safe and saved. Christ isn't going anywhere. He's forever. He's not going to abandon His priestly role. But He is interceding for us continually. We'll pick up next week at verse 26. Give consideration to this truth even now uh, as Adam comes and leads us at the table.